wrestle through it. He would do really things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've shared with you all once or twice in the past some of my baseball exploits as a kid. Um, maybe you remember that, maybe not. Uh, but I lived uh, overseas in, in South Africa for a while and came back here around the age of 11 or so and uh, discovered Twinkies and Pop-Tarts and Fruit Loops and all that good stuff, right? So, um, so my story begins uh, around sixth, sixth grade to about eighth grade. Um, and I, I was a fairly roly-poly little guy. I also loved baseball. Um, I played Little League every spring and just looked forward to that like nothing in the world. I wasn't that bad either, actually. I could hit pretty well. I could field pretty well. Uh, the only thing I, problem I had is I, I wasn't exactly Ricky Henderson on the bases. Um, and I, there was one game where I got up and I got on first base. Uh, it, it must have... Got, I got a walk or something like that. Anyway, and uh, we had to have been either up by a bunch of runs or down by a bunch of runs. But the, cause the coach looked at me, and he sent the steal signal. And I kind of looked at him, and I mean, I could have stolen first base on a lawn tractor quickly, then on my legs. And so I sort of said, nah, he must have like an itch or something on his nose. That can't be right. So he looks at me again, and I'm not, he sees I'm not taking a lead. And this time he gives me the, you know, the, the Marty, you know, par, article par excellence emphatic Signal, you know, steal. Uh, so I'm like, okay, okay, coach. I mean, that's what coach tells you to steal. What do you do? You steal. So all I remember is the pitcher goes into his windup, and the ball leaves his hand, and I take off. And I don't remember what happens next, except I'm lying on my back at second base. I was just slid into the base. I got an umpire standing over me with a big kind of grumpy, umpy look on his face. You know, he's just looking down at me like that, and he seemed like bigger than the world. And I'm just waiting for it. And he says, safe. And like the entire bench just erupts because the little fat kid just stole second base. <laughs> um, I look back at that now and I think one of three possible things happened that day. Either God stopped time long enough to let me get to second, all right? You know, like with, uh, with, with Joshua in, in Gibeon, he kind of hangs the sun there for a day, half a day, that, that might have been a possibility. He just kind of stopped time, just long enough to get me there. Either that or the other team was so dumbfounded by the move, so, so awestruck with the audacity of this fat kid thinking he could actually steal second base, that they just froze. They didn't know what to do. Or maybe the umpire had some, uh, a tender moment of grace and mercy. <laughs> I don't know. Here's the funny thing, though. No matter what explanation uh, I choose, they all have one thing in common. Uh, and that's the reason I was actually able to steal second. It was because of my shortcoming. In essence, I succeeded because I was a little hefty, right? Not in spite of it. So I don't know if you can relate to that. Maybe you can. Has God ever used your inabilities for purposes of achieving success? Or have they only held you back? Everything you've done for him always been a result of your abilities and your giftings. Um, I see it as there's kind of three types of people, three types of Christians, if you will, uh, as I was kind of thinking this through. Um, there's those who say, I have nothing worthy to offer, so out of my unworthiness, I'm going to offer nothing. Uh, and then there's those who say, I have nothing but worthiness to offer, so out of all my worth, I offer everything. And then there's those who say, I have nothing worthy to offer, but out of my unworthiness, 
I'm going to offer everything. So uh, which person do you think God uses? Yeah. I think he uses the third guy too, Kurt. Um, so we're going to look at that in a minute. But uh, first let me put all this into context, because here I'm going on a bit, and you're probably wondering, what's this talk even about? Well, we're, about, we're going to be looking at this book called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. And we're going to be looking at this for the next, uh, what, eight weeks or so anyway, um, or several weeks. And this, is, this talks about, it's a great account of how Jesus evangelized, how Jesus um, basically built his church. And we're going to be looking at it, and he's going to talk about several things. He's going to talk about selection, association, consecration, impartation, demonstration, delegation, supervision, and reproduction. I'm only talking about one of those, thank goodness, because I can barely spell any of them. Um, so, but I'm going to talk about selection today, and that's what I was getting at before. We're going to start with that. We're going to look at how Jesus selected the people he used to build his church, the men, and we're going to look at who Jesus selected to build his church. Okay, and then maybe look, try and look a little bit at what does that mean for us today. Uh, so let's just start with, with how he built his ministry. Um, it's pretty clear from the Gospels that he, he, he kind of went straight into Jerusalem, right? And, and, he, and he got on his soapbox, and, and he got on top of it, and he preached, and multitudes came, and he thought to himself, this looks like a great spot for a mega temple, right? So we broke ground on that, and the rest is history, right? <laughs> exactly. No, no that, that's not how it happened. You all know that. Um, absolutely preached to the multitudes. Three of his major discourses contained in the book of Matthew... Sermon on the Mount, the Kingdom of the Heaven, Heaven Parables, and the Olivet Discourse were all given to large crowds. Jesus spoke to large crowds, preaching to many people. is obviously a big part of the spread of the gospel. Um, the point I'm making, though, is uh, giving the word, while it involves preaching to many, uh, the point I'm making is that preaching to the multitudes wasn't the plan or process Jesus used. It was the outcome of that plan. Uh, Coleman notes in this book, Jesus was not trying to impress the crowd, but to usher in a kingdom. And I think that's important to consider. So when it comes to how we go about the plan of evangelism, I think we often jump straight to Peter when we think about it, converting 3,000 at the temple. Uh, But when we do that, we, we leapfrog Jesus in the process. So we have to ask ourselves, what did Jesus do? Okay, And that's what this book does, and that's what we're going to be exploring. And uh, he began his church calling, uh, by calling his apostles, as you all know. It wasn't an army of 10,000. It wasn't an army of 1,000. It wasn't an army of even 100. It was 12 guys. He just chose 12. Uh, and how did he go about this process? Well, the first thing he did was consult the Father. If you, if you uh, have your Bibles there and you look at uh, Luke 6, uh, 12 through 13 with me, um, You'll see, you'll read that it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, who he named as apostles. He spent the whole night in prayer, choosing his apostles. Asking the Father. So the first thing we do is pray. So his ministry, the model of evangelism, began, I would submit to you, with a whole lot of prayer, but not a whole lot of people. The next thing we notice is that Jesus uh, uh, focused on making disciples, not converts. 
He began with a few into whom he poured richly, building and demonstrating for us the perfect discipleship and church-building model. He took them just about everywhere he went, including to the Transfiguration, right? He took three of them there. He poured lovingly into their instruction. Okay, just consider the upper room, upper room discourse in John 3, 16, 3, 13 through 16. Four whole chapters dedicated to Jesus pouring into his apostles and pouring into all of us as a result. <clears throat> and of course, he prayed for them as we talked about. So as we see so beautifully in, uh, in John 17, we, we saw how for those he was discipling. But here's the bottom line. He took time for these guys. He took time for them. It wasn't a one-off event. Um, so as we go about our evangelism, we have to ask ourselves, I think, have we deviated from Christ's plan? Um, and if so, to what end? Matthew 28, 19 says, Jesus instructed us to make disciples, right? Not fill churches. The filling of the churches is good. We want to fill the church. We want to fill this church to the brim, and we're doing it. Praise God for that. But, again, I say filling the church is the result, not the method of making disciples. If our plan is to bring as many people to church and then leave the rest to to Marty and Michael to do the pastoring and the discipling, we're just not going to be as effective. We ourselves have to be the ones who pour into people's lives um, and and help people become disciple-makers themselves with that same passion. So um, let me give you a practical demonstration. In his three years of ministry, Jesus raised up 12 mighty apostles, right, who would form the foundation of the church. Now, that would equate to roughly four per year. Now, I know he, he found all of his apostles in the first year, we don't, different times, different places. But just go with me here. Four per year. Let's just go with the number. Uh, we're not Jesus, so maybe raising up four committed disciples in a single year is a bit of a stretch. But could we, could we raise up just one? Could each of you, in the next year, raise up just one disciple? What do you think? No? I'm not seeing a lot of... The answer is yes. I know it's early, guys. Um, uh, say we did. We committed to bringing that person back, that guy here, in one year. So if I guess that there's 75 or so people here, maybe more, I wrote it down, um, we would mean we'd have next year 150. What would that look like if the trend continues? Year after that, 300. Three years, 600. In four years, 1,200. By the fifth year, 2,400 people coming here. We'd actually have to move to the sanctuary and have three services, right? That's what it would look like. Keep going. By the year 10 we'd have 76,800 people. By year 20, more than 78 million. That's the math of discipleship. Um, and that's, how did Jesus do it? He did it that way. He began pouring deeply into the lives of a few who in turn became disciple makers. And I think we need to go back to his plan. So, uh, is that clock accurate? <laughs> okay. It said 10.30 before. I was like, I could be up here for like hours. No one's going to know. That's, that's not true, but anyway. All right. So, so we're, that, that's, that's why that Jesus' how was focusing on one person at a time. It's not a huge pressure that we have to put on ourselves that we've got to go out like Peter and bring 3,000 people to Christ with the magic words that we say. We pour into one life at a time. And I'm telling you, we'll change the world. 
Um, so the second question, then, I think is equally important, and that's uh, uh, not just how, but who. Who did Jesus use? I can tell you one thing Jesus didn't use, one thing God never used when he selects his, the men who he will build his church upon, uh, and that's conventional wisdom. Isn't that right? Um, conventional wisdom would have led him, with Jesus, to the teachers of the law, would have led him probably to the guys who really knew the Torah and the teachings of all the prophets. After all, who else would know more about the Messiah and the Messianic age? Though, ironically, they couldn't even recognize him. But Jesus doesn't even consider those guys. In fact, Jesus doesn't get around to using a guy trained in the law until about the ninth chapter of Acts. All right? And then he picks a guy named Saul, a Pharisee, and the son of a Pharisee. But here's the thing. He picks a guy who's so well versed in the Torah and everything else. He didn't send him to the Jews. Where does he send him? He sends him to the Gentiles. So it's unconventional. So who does Jesus begin with? He starts with four fishermen, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, a tax collector, good old Matthew, right? A zealot, the rebel, Simon, and six other guys whose backgrounds and occupations we don't really know a lot about, Thomas, Bartholomew, Philip, James, son of Alphaeus, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot. He selected as a treasurer, which is interesting. Um, they were probably fishermen or tradesmen of some sort, but one thing we know, they weren't Levitical priests, they weren't Pharisees, they weren't Sadducees. They weren't guys well-versed in the law. Um, why did he choose these guys? Well, chapter 5, the Pharisees discovered Jesus and his disciples hanging out with a bunch of tax collectors and scoundrels and other insalubrious types. And he, isn't that great? I found that word. I have no idea what it means, but it must be... Insalubrious types, not nice. Uh, and, and, and they call Jesus on it. They call him for hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners. Um, so Luke 5, 30 uh, through 32 reads, if you, if you want to look at that in your Bible, or I'll just read it to you. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them and said to them, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See what Jesus did there in others? He selected his apostles, I think, and searched out those who looked more like the people he came to reach. Just keep that in mind. Um, in fact, go back to the example I gave before. If you're trying to convince a bunch of fat kids that they can compete on the baseball field, do you bring them Ricky Henderson, right, or Billy Hamilton? And say, yeah, be like these guys. Run like them. No, they're they're going to look at you like, what? Okay, sure, run like them. How do we do that? Now, you, you wouldn't show them those guys. You know what you do? You show them another fat kid who found a way, right? And I, I, I submit to you, that's, that's, that's all we really are. We're all a bunch of fat kids who found a way by the means of the power of Jesus. And that story is the best part of what we have to give. That's what qualifies us, I think, to, to speak with authority and to speak into the lives of others. Because in, through that, they can relate to you and see the amazing things God did with you. God doesn't demonstrate his glory through your abilities, what you can do. He demonstrates his glory through your inabilities, what you can't do. Uh, I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 13. When he's talking about the thorn, the old thorn in his flesh, right? His, 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 most people think his eyesight. And he, and he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, 
I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. His pity our weaknesses. It was perfected in my chubby little body in sixth grade. Perfected in each and every one of you in the ways that you are drawn in and called to, to really depend on God. Um, now, it's always been God. It's moreover, it's always been God's plan to use unconventional people. I mean, Abraham was prone to giving his wife away. Jacob was a swindler. Eleven of his twelve children with the future leaders, right, of the twelve tribes of Israel were such good character, they sold their brother into slavery. Moses stuttered. And, of course, there's David, and I'm going to close with this one, because the story of David is just one of my favorite. I love the way it is. It's in 1 Samuel 16. If you want to turn there, again, I'll just describe it to you. In this chapter, God lays out through Samuel exactly how he chose David to replace Paul. Uh, and the first thing he, he does is he sends Samuel to Jesse, the Bethlehem. Okay, so the first thing we see is he goes to Bethlehem, kind of an unconventional location for, for a king, right? Why is it important? Yeah, it was prophesied. It was, it was, it was, it had, it was God's plan. Um, but he sends him to Bethlehem uh, to select one of Jesse's sons as the elect. Samuel first is presented with Eliab, the oldest and presumably uh, a man of considerable height and stature, since that's what the Bible says. Um, you know, this looks like the guy, the eldest son. This is always the guy you choose. Um, nope. God says, nope. The next oldest is, comes and, and, and is presented and rejected. And he's followed by the next, and he goes all the way through these seven sons. And he's kind of like, nope, nah, nope, not that one. Um, until we come to the youngest. David. He's such an afterthought, he's not even around. David is out tending sheep at the time. See, God knows a good shepherd when he sees one. And indeed, he was searching for a shepherd that he could mold into a warrior. Not a warrior that he could try and use as a shepherd. Um, So of Eliab, God says this, and this is the important point. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. Because I've rejected him. God sees, for God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Uh, I, I'm, in my, I'm, going into, I'm in my final year at DTS. Um, it's, been, it's been four, five years. I don't even know how long. Thank you. It's tempting to think back and, and, and think what God has, you know, what God has done and, 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 and to think to myself, well, God's got me here because of all I learned, and, and, and so forth. And um, Yeah, I've learned a lot. I had four semesters of Greek, four semesters of Hebrew, six semesters of systematic theology, six semesters of Bible exposition, counseling, missions classes, seminars, blah, blah, blah. I could go on. Yeah, there's a lot there, but, and it will equip me, but that never served. The basis for my calling was that I, once like Saul, utterly turned my back on Jesus, And I was once so broken by pride and so blinded by my own abilities that I believed I could make it entirely on my own power, wisdom, and strength. In other words, I forgot entirely about that little fat kid who had no business stealing second base. So as I finish out seminary, I'm seeing more and more clearly that God God is not using me for my intellect or ability, which is probably a good thing because there's not a lot of it. Um, he's using me for my brokenness, both, both, my pa- both my past brokenness and my brokenness now. Um, 
because we're all, and don't forget this, we're all forever a work in progress. Until that last day, that's what we'll be. Um, he uses my brokenness uh, because my brokenness is real. It's authentic. It's relatable. It's what God uses to make my heart, hopefully, a safe place for others. My words, a balm instead of acid. Um, and that's pretty much what makes me an unconventional choice, too. So my question for you is this. What makes you an unconventional choice? What in your life reflects the miraculous outpouring of God's grace? That's the truth people need to hear. That's the place where that one disciple this year that you were going to start with needs to hear from you. <clears throat> so choose one. Or choose four if you're ambitious. Give him your time. Give him your ear. Listen. Give him your love. Then give him your wisdom. And most of all, share your brokenness with him. Show him how God could use even you in his plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are indeed a gracious and glorious Father. And the heavens declare your glory and reveal it to us every single day. And the skies just reveal the knowledge of who you are in the work of your hands. We spow in awe of you, Lord. And Lord Jesus, it is so difficult sometimes to, to reconcile ourselves to the glory of who you are and the magnitude of the price you paid. It seems hardly that we're worth it, but we're so worth it to you. You who knit us together in a womb. You who formed us from the very beginning. Father, help us to see the ways in which you have glorified and are glorified in our brokenness, the ways in which you have made us able of things we never could have done on our own. And help the world to see this, Lord. We pray for all of these men. I pray for all of these men that as they go from this place and into this world for the rest of this year and the rest of their lives, Lord, that you would in them present to the world broken people who love you deeply, who are redeemed by you, and are mighty, mighty warriors as a result. And we ask these things in your precious son's name. Amen. Thank you. Thanks. I don't remember what the questions were, but they're on your sheet. <laughs> I was relying on the... <laughs>